Hey, it's Dan. Our team is working on some great stories for 2024 that we're going to start rolling out in January. So for the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite episodes from this year today. Part one of a two-part series we originally dropped in May about how clinicians and regulators are trying to keep racial bias out of artificial intelligence. And if you want more, I will be moderating a series of conversations on racial bias and AI with federal health officials and industry leaders December 15th. Check out the show notes for more information. Lots of people are talking about artificial intelligence or AI in healthcare these days. An algorithm that is able to tell who might be at risk for lung cancer. The hope that AI will soon be able to provide real-time healthcare recommendations. But will this new technology replace the need for humans in the hospital altogether? Hospitals are using these AI tools to help clinicians diagnose breast cancer, read x-rays, and predict who needs more care. There is growing excitement that these tools can make healthcare better, but there's also a risk that these powerful new tools will perpetuate long-standing inequities. If you mess this up, you can really, really harm people by entrenching systemic racism further into the health system. Bias in AI is complex and important, so we're devoting back-to-back episodes to the issue. Today, in part one, the challenge of diagnosing racial bias in AI and what one health system is trying to do about it. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Before we get started, a definition. When we talk about artificial intelligence, or AI, we're talking about a computer program trained to perform tasks normally done by humans. And a growing number of hospitals are using AI to improve care for their patients and make life easier for their staff, people like Emily Sterrett. I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Duke University Hospital. There are days that I never sit down, constantly moving from patient to patient to patient, and my phone is ringing and ambulances are coming in. Actually, Emily loves it. I enjoy going fast. That is me. (laughs) Sure, she craves the rush of making quick decisions, but she's obsessed with finding ways to deliver better care, especially trying to prevent her young patients from getting sepsis. I have a constant worry for eight hours nonstop when I'm on shift that I'm missing sepsis. Sepsis happens when the body overreacts to an infection and starts attacking its own organs. At least 1.7 million people in the U.S. develop sepsis every year, including about 75,000 kids. Data show about 7,000 of them die. Sepsis can be treated effectively with antibiotics, but speed is critical. Studies in adults show that delays of just hours can significantly increase the risk of death. The challenge for Emily and every other emergency room doc is diagnosing who has sepsis. Common early symptoms include high fever, high heart rate, and high white blood cell count. Some children will have this response with a common cold and they need some Tylenol and Popsicle and a chicken soup. However, 
for other children, they actually have a life-threatening process going on. And it is very hard to know the difference between the two. Emily knows it's a cliche, but she says it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, a constant vigilance that wears on her and her colleagues day after day. Even worse are the days when she misses that needle or spots it too late and a child dies. The most common question I have been asked by parents whose child has just died of sepsis is, what could I have done differently? How is it possible that my child is dead? They were fine yesterday. I need them in that moment to know that they were loving parents who were doing the best they knew how to do for their child. All that said, I still carry the guilt with me about not acting fast enough, not recognizing fast enough, not fixing a child fast enough. These conversations haunt Emily, worried that she sends kids home with a popsicle and chicken soup, totally unaware of the sepsis attacking their young bodies. Emily loves the idea of an algorithm constantly taking in data, searching for those haystack needles instead of her. When it's a child's life on the line, having a backup system that AI could offer to bolster some of that human fallibility is really, really important. Still, Emily thought that kind of AI surveillance system was a pipe dream, a unicorn at the end of the rainbow. She doubted a computer could do something as hard and as delicate as diagnosing sepsis in kids. But more and more, data scientists are convinced they found that unicorn. It's a subset of artificial intelligence known as machine learning. In machine learning, scientists train algorithms by feeding a bunch of information, test results and diagnoses, for example, into a computer program that uses that data to predict future outcomes. Machine learning can take large amounts of data and can identify patterns and trends that would not be intuitive to any human looking at the data. Mark Sendak works at Duke Health, where he's one of the head data scientists for the Duke Institute for Health Innovation. Mark says Duke leans on machine learning algorithms to streamline scheduling, diagnose kidney disease, and identify cancerous tumors. His team has developed more than 20 AI tools for Duke. In the fall of 2019, Mark and his team started working with Emily to develop a machine learning algorithm to do what Emily had always thought was impossible, help clinicians get a jump on the kids most likely to become septic. I was skeptical to start because I knew it would be really hard. Mark said the algorithm, sometimes called a model, would work like this. We train models that ingest all of the relevant clinical signs and indicators. Vital signs, blood work, organ failure from kids previously treated for sepsis at Duke. The algorithm uses those clinical signs to figure out what kid is most likely to be septic. And then every 15 minutes, the algorithm asks the question for every patient, does this kid have sepsis or not? 
Mark and Emily agreed if they could pull this off, it could revolutionize the treatment of childhood sepsis and potentially save thousands of lives a year. What we're trying to do is provide the best, most accurate, most timely diagnosis for pediatric sepsis to get kids treatment. And that's what we should be aspiring for. It's just one example of why enthusiasm for machine learning is exploding in healthcare. But AI in the industry is still in its early days. It's not clear how many hospitals use these tools in patient care. And while interest is certainly high, several experts told us they believe adoption is still limited. That might be a good thing, because along with the potential power of AI to improve healthcare, there's also a risk it could replicate racial biases and even make them worse. How Duke is trying to protect its sepsis algorithm from bias after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. When Mark Sendak and Emily Sterrett first met at a coffee house in Durham, North Carolina in the fall of 2019 to talk about a machine learning algorithm for childhood sepsis, Mark knew they needed to be careful. He had just read a groundbreaking paper that demonstrated how easy it was for bias to creep into computer algorithms like the one they were dreaming up for sepsis. It kind of made you hold your breath of like, shit. If you mess this up or don't pay attention to the right things, you can really, really harm people. The study that shook up Mark was published in the journal Science. Researchers found that an algorithm used to predict health needs for more than 100 million people was biased against black patients. The algorithm relied on how much people spent on healthcare to predict future healthcare needs. But because black patients historically had less access to care, they often spent less. Under this algorithm, black patients had to be much sicker to be recommended for extra care. The study drove home a simple but profound point to mark. Data may seem neutral, even fair, but it can be biased. People of color, for example, are often underrepresented in datasets that train AI. Research shows clinicians often provide different care to white and non-white patients. Those differences have been cemented into the data. When you learn from the past, you replicate the past. You further entrench the past. Because you take existing inequities and you treat them as the aspiration for how healthcare should be delivered. Mark and other experts we spoke with said, 
the paper in Science is one of the few documented examples of AI harming patients. Mark says, it takes a lot of time and money to uncover bias like this, and there are few incentives for developers or health systems to look for it. But there's a consensus among healthcare researchers and data scientists who study AI that the potential for bias to get baked into AI is real, and it is dangerous. Mark likes to use a warning often attributed to Mark Twain. History never repeats itself, but it often rhymes. The problem with AI is that history does repeat itself. Like you're essentially walking where there's landmines and your stuff's going to blow up and it's going to hurt people. So when Mark and his team started building the childhood sepsis algorithm, they walked very carefully. They spent a month working with Emily to teach the algorithm to identify sepsis based on clinical tools, vital signs, and lab tests, instead of using easily accessible but often incomplete billing data. It's like almost 50 to 100 times more complex to define sepsis using vitals and labs. After every tweak they made, the team tested the program to see if it found sepsis equally well in patients of different races and ethnicities. Another time-consuming landmine avoided. In June of 2022, the team unveiled the first draft to Emily. Mark's team was able to show me a dashboard of every child in the hospital who had sepsis. It was so much more sophisticated and complex than I could almost wrap my brain around. The algorithm wasn't yet predicting which kids would get sepsis, but it was identifying which patients were septic in real time. Emily could now picture a world where she could worry a little less about sepsis. She could see how this algorithm could add to her own capacity and improve care for her patients. When we started putting names and dates and locations to where sepsis was happening, that was a breakthrough moment. The team felt like they were within spitting distance of finalizing an algorithm that could save kids' lives. And then, an unexpected meeting that fall threw all of their painstaking efforts to elude bias into doubt. Duke researcher Ganga Morthy had found that doctors took much longer to order critical blood tests for Hispanic kids eventually diagnosed with sepsis than white kids, the kind of delay that could be deadly. One of my major hypotheses was that physicians were taking illnesses in white children perhaps more seriously than those of Hispanic children, or perhaps there were delays in time to interpreters. Ganga logged onto the meeting hoping that Mark's algorithm could identify the source behind the delays and hopefully eliminate them. That, after all, is part of the dream with AI, that computers will catch what humans miss and protect against clinicians' inevitable biases and shortcomings. I came into it being like, cool, we have this computer algorithm that is probably smarter than us that really looks at mostly objective data that puts everyone on a little bit more of a level playing field of saying that if your heart rate is elevated, it doesn't matter if you need an interpreter. It doesn't matter if you know what your race, your ethnicity is, you could be at risk for sepsis and should be given attention. As Gongo worked through her slide, listing the possible sources of delay, time to interpreter, provider bias, Mark's eyes got wider and wider. I probably had my hands on my face 
within like seconds of seeing that slide just like oh my god we totally missed all of these subtle things that if any one of these was consistently true could introduce bias into the algorithm as Ganga continued, Mark's mind was racing. Imagine, he thought, two patients arrive in the ER at exactly the same time, with exactly the same symptoms, both septic. One family speaks English, the other Spanish. While medically identical, Ganga was telling him it might take doctors 60 to 120 minutes longer to order tests, diagnose sepsis, and begin treatment. That would mean that the, the kid whose care was delayed would look like they have sepsis two hours later than the kid whose care wasn't delayed. In that instant, Mark realized there was a chance the algorithm would think it takes Hispanic kids longer to develop sepsis. In other words, hard-coding the delay that Ganga had found into data Mark thought his team had scrubbed clean of bias. I was angry with myself because I know that it is easy to put something out there that can cause massive harm. How could we not see this? Bias in AI is obviously a problem bigger than Duke. Researcher and soon-to-be University of Minnesota assistant professor Paige Nong says, as interest in healthcare AI accelerates, the focus on diagnosing bias is falling behind. Paige interviewed data officials last year at 13 medical centers. Of the 13, only four told Paige they consider racial equity when developing or vetting machine learning algorithms just like Duke's. What I was hearing in my interviews was that if a particular leader at a hospital or a health system happened to be personally concerned about racial inequity, then that would inform how they thought about AI in their healthcare system. But there was nothing structural. There was nothing at the regulatory or policy level that was requiring them to think or act that way. Page's research has its limitations. It hasn't been peer-reviewed, and she only talked with a handful of hospitals. Yet, it's one of the first studies of its kind, and it matches what we heard through our own reporting. A lot of hospitals are psyched about AI, but few think deeply about how to identify potential bias. Leaders in the space, like Duke and the Mayo Clinic, have formed national industry coalitions to develop and share best practices, and researchers have developed playbooks for combating bias. Page considers this a start, but wildly insufficient. What we need is regulation. We need policies that address this problem and make racial equity an urgent priority for all the hospitals in the United States, not just the ones that have individual leaders who are invested uh, in racial equity. The good news, Page says, is racial bias in AI is beginning to get attention from federal health officials. They see how even the most well-resourced, well-intentioned health systems, like Duke, are struggling to diagnose bias in their algorithms. And they recognize there's more attention needed to keep AI from doing more harm than good. Since this story first aired, Paige's research has been peer-reviewed, and she's now looking at how smaller hospitals are addressing equity in AI. Next week, in part two of our story, what three federal agencies are doing to keep racial bias from getting to the bedside, 
and how Mark Sendak and Emily Sterrett tried to keep their childhood sepsis algorithm bias-free. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage on diagnostic excellence is supported in part by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Special thanks this week to Suresh Balu, Jeff Smith, and Jordan Everson. Additional thanks to Julia Adler Milstein, Brett Bolier Jones, Bennett Borden, David Dorr, Malika Fair, Sarah Gurkey, Marzia Gassimi, Maya Hightower, John Halamka, Chris Hemphill, John Jackson, Jen King, Elaine Nsoyasi, Ziad Obermeyer, Michael Pensina, Yolanda Pagetze, Deb Raji, Juan Rojas, Keo Shaw, Mona Siddiqui, Youssef Talha Tamer, Ritwik Tawari, Danny Toby, Alexandra Valladaris, David Vital, Stephen Waldron, Anna Zink, and James Zhu. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Amy Hanauer, Margaret Tate, and Frank Shee. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.